to know you, very important, is how tall are you? That's a good question. Too tall. I'm about 6'5". Six five. Six, yeah. <laughs> I, I asked that because if I remember correctly, when you first interviewed at that church, yes. the one question they asked after yes. you preached was... How tall are you? Yes. yes. So it's apparently very important very to know important. for your pastor. <laughs> Actually, I think, because we've had Nick Winder, who's also tall, preach, you're too tall for our cameras, because they're, they're <laughs> pointed for my height <laughs> over your height. <laughs> so it is important. Well, how long have you been there at that church? Yeah, so I've been at Crossroads Church in Sandy for just over eight years. It was eight years this August, 2014 of August is when I started, so... That's great. And uh, um, you grew up in Utah, is that yes. right? Yeah, so I grew up in Layton, Utah, uh, basically age 4 to 22. Utah was my home. Uh, graduated from Weber State University and then spent roughly seven years in Kentucky where I did my seminary training and met my wife out there as well. So, well, Maybe one other question. What's one of the things you enjoy or love about ministry here in Utah? Yeah, um, well, there's a lot. I mean... It's cool to be back in the place I grew up in, and everyone knows how much of a need there is for uh, just good gospel preaching and healthy churches in this place. Um, and I just enjoy the opportunity to try to minister the word to people and share the gospel and see people discipled. Great. Well, we're excited to have you minister to us. This Thank morning. you. Yep. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so I'll invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, I am thankful for the invitation to be with you. I've known John now for several years, and I'm thankful for the work that we hear about happening at this church. In fact, we pray for this church often. We will pray for you often and your leaders and the members here in our pastoral prayers on Sunday morning. So know that we are partners in the gospel, and you all are on our hearts and minds regularly. So I am thankful to get the opportunity to minister the word to you from Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 10. It's a familiar story probably to many of you. You most likely know the context. John mentioned it already in the children's sermon. This is the account of the events concerning Moses' birth. And leading up to it, just to set the context, Pharaoh is afraid of the Israelites because they are multiplying in Egypt. And you know the story that he tells the midwives to kill the Hebrew male children, and they outwit Pharaoh. They refuse, and they don't do that. So Pharaoh says, okay, well, then we're going to cast the Hebrew boys into the river because he wants this nation weakened, and he wants them destroyed. And that leads us to these events now in chapter 2 of Exodus. And so I will read, beginning in verse 1 through verse 10. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer... She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. 
She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Let's pause and pray and ask the Lord's help as we consider this text. Our gracious God, we come to you now and thank you for your word, and we pray, O God, for the illumination of your spirit as we seek to understand it. Lord, we pray that we would not merely be hearers, but doers of the word. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. And we pray that you would speak to us, O God, for your servants are listening. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the things I love about the story of Moses' birth is how obvious it is that God is all over the story, though he is never mentioned. But it is obviously apparent that he is working in all of the details and the events surrounding Moses' birth. Now, it seems like not everyone thinks the same way. I was reading one particular commentary as I was studying this text, and it's a really good commentary in many ways. It's in the Interpretation Commentary series, commentary on Exodus. It has so many good insights and so many good reflections, but I came across this statement in the commentary. Here's what it says. These human beings could have failed, speaking of Moses' mom and sister, and God would have had to find a different way into the future with the possibilities then available. The non-mention of God must be given its full weight. Now, I read that statement and I was like, what? The non-mention of God must be given its full weight, so these things just happen to work out? Pharaoh's mom just happened to decide to put him in a basket, or Moses' mom just happened to decide to put him in a basket? He just happened not to get eaten by a crocodile, like John said? It just so happened that Pharaoh's daughter, of all people, is the one who found Moses, and it just so happened that he grew up in Pharaoh's household? I just think that statement in the commentary is totally misguided. I think God is all over the narrative, though he is not mentioned in these 10 verses. And God specifically orchestrated these events and so governed them by his providence for intentional, purposeful reasons to accomplish his plan and foreshadow his great salvation. God's providence is all over this narrative. Let me read to you a definition of providence 
from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5. Maybe you know about this confession of faith. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, says this about providence. God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's a beautiful statement. Spend some time reflecting on chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession of Faith and God's providence. It is simply articulating what we find in the Bible. Here's how the Bible talks about providence in various ways. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Psalm 135, 5-7, for I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. I love that statement. You know why? Because whatever we please, we can't always do. But whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven, And on earth, in the seas and all deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is a stream in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. One more, Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So there are no random occurrences. There are no accidents in human history. The decisions of the king, the casting of lots, the patterns of the weather, the rise and fall of empires, the medical diagnosis you may get this year, the good days, the bad days, the joy, the sorrow, come from the hand of God, and he governs all things by his providence. And that includes the details about Moses' birth. So what I want us to see from this text is that God, in his providence, orchestrated Moses' deliverance from death as a pattern for his plan of salvation, while at the same time mocking evil Pharaoh in the process. All right, so let's look at this text. Notice first that God set apart Moses from birth for a special task. Moses is born of the house of Levi. He's a special baby from birth. Now, all parents think their babies are special, and indeed they are. They bear the image of God. But there is something unique about Moses. Notice what the text says in verse 2. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. 
So Moses was a fine child. Right, so what does that mean? Clearly there was something unique about this baby. John Calvin said that Moses had some special mark on him that marked him out. Maybe that's speculative. A.W. Pink said Moses' parents would have received some extra revelation from God to know that he had been set apart for a task. Maybe. We don't know, but what does it mean that he was a fine child? Well, remember Hebrews comments on this text as well. And here's what Hebrews says. This is Hebrews 11.23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. He was a Gerber baby. So if he was ugly, they would have handed him over. No. So he was a fine child. Hebrews, he was a beautiful child. Now there's actually another text in the New Testament that comments on Moses' birth. It's Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. Here's verse 20, which sheds more light on what's going on. Acts 7.20, at this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. So clearly, whatever this means, it is getting at the idea that God had a special task and had set apart Moses for this task. He was called by God from birth to accomplish something great. Now, what was that great thing that Moses was going to accomplish? Well, we could literally translate Exodus 2, verse 2, this way. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was good, she hid him for three months. So the, so the woman sees, and she sees that he is good. Now remember, Moses wrote Exodus. Moses also wrote Genesis. And I think Moses is using very specific language here to allude to the book of Genesis, because you'll remember in the creation narrative what happens. God creates, and he sees, and it is good. So God said, let there be light. He saw the light, and it was good. So Moses is alluding to his own creation narrative to say Moses is going to be the one to advance God's creation project forward. What was that project? It was for God's people to dwell with God in his presence under his rule and blessing. And God's purpose for creation now is going to be carried forward in his purpose for redemption. And Moses is going to be the one to lead this forward to see God's people dwelling in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God is not mentioned in the narrative, but from the very beginning, God is clearly the one at work. God is clearly the one who has set aside Moses, this baby, to be the agent of his salvation for God's people. Isn't it great that God's answer to Pharaoh's evil actions is a baby? It makes me think of Psalm 2, or Psalm 8, verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength 
because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Pharaoh has edicts. Pharaoh has power. Pharaoh is evil. He has armies. Guess what, Pharaoh? God says, I've got a baby. Look out. And of course, we know that already this pattern is anticipating the salvation that has come to us. For when Jesus was born as a baby, the angel said to his parents, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So that's first. Second, notice God's providence in delivering Moses out of the waters of death. God delivers Moses out of the waters of death. Verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now again, I think we miss this in, in a lot of our English translations, but literally... What the text says is that Moses' mother made an ark. She made a little ark for Moses. Same word that is used in the flood story of Noah. And again, Moses wrote Genesis, Moses wrote Exodus, and he wants us to see the parallels between Noah's ark and Moses' ark. That's why I titled this sermon, Moses' Ark and the Providence of God. I mean, there's so many parallels from the construction of the box to the construction of the ark with pitch. And also, if you'll remember in the narrative, Noah is presented as a little s savior. When he's born, his father recognizes that he's special, Lamech, who in Genesis chapter 5, 28 and 29, when he sees Noah, says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord is cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. You see what he's saying? Finally, this curse that was put upon humanity and upon the created order in Genesis 3, where man is going to eat bread by the sweat of his brow, and there's going to be thorns and thistles, and in painful toil they shall work. Well, Noah, he's the one who's going to bring rest. He's the one who's going to bring relief. And as the narrative goes on, Noah is indeed a little s savior of the world, because God has him construct an ark and when he brings the waters of judgment onto the world, the waters of death, Noah is safe in the ark with God and his family. And he passes through these waters to a mountain, into a new creation, where he is now the first man, the new Adam of this new world. Now, Moses' birth story is picking up that theme. See, I always read this and thought, why in the world would Moses' mom put him in a box in the Nile? I mean, it just seems crazy, doesn't it? Out of all of the solutions you could try to think of to save your child, you're going to stick him in a box? What about crocodiles? Right? That keeps coming up. What about drowning. Couldn't you just smuggle him out? 
Maybe, I don't know this for sure, but maybe Moses' parents were familiar with Noah's story and recognizing that Noah was set apart by God and Moses was set apart by God and having no other alternative, it was an act of faith to put him in the water and to trust God to save Moses like he saved Noah. Maybe that's the case. But clearly the narrative wants us to connect the two. That God's pattern of salvation with Noah in in bringing Noah through his own baptism. Now Moses must undergo this baptism. He must pass through these waters of death to life. Could Moses' mom's actions have failed? Well, from her perspective, yes. She doesn't know how God is going to work all these things out. But could they have failed? No way. Because God is clearly orchestrating these events. As one commentator put it, Moses was never safer than when he was in the ark in the Nile. And how true that is, because God is executing his plan of salvation down to the details, the very details. God didn't plan to deliver Moses on a wagon pulled by a horse out of Egypt. He would have had to be named Bonanza or something like that. No, he must pass through the waters of judgment, the waters of death. The waters of the Nile that are supposed to consume his brothers. There was no plan B, brothers and sisters. See, there's a reason these patterns are in the Old Testament. There's a reason Jesus said, I have a baptism to undergo. There's a reason Jesus said, I have a baptism to undergo. He had already been baptized by John when he said that. He wasn't talking about his baptism at the Jordan. He was talking about the cross where he would experience the flood of God's righteous and holy wrath against sin and go into death as a vicarious substitute for sinners. And out of death comes life. These patterns are built into redemptive history to teach us about God's plan for our salvation. So in the narrative, Moses is a little s savior. And notice third, how God in his providence governs the details of this narrative to mock evil Pharaoh and his schemes. And I think mocking is a good word to use. Why is that? Because how does Pharaoh want the babies to be killed? By being thrown into the river. Okay, Pharaoh, you want the babies thrown in the river? Well, one of them's going to be put in the river, and this one is going to come out of the river to undermine Egypt. Let's consider the details. So Moses' mother puts him in the river and probably asks Moses' sister to follow him. Seems like they're not expecting this to be the end of Moses. And the daughter of Pharaoh, of all people, finds Moses. You see God's hands in this? She opens up the box and sees the baby crying. And the text says she has compassion on him. She has compassion on the baby. And I think you would too. And then notice the clever tactics of Moses' sister in verses 
7 and 8. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. I mean, the irony of this story is so profound. I said that God mocks evil Pharaoh in all of this. Maybe we should say that God triumphs over evil in all of this. Pharaoh, you want the baby cast into the water. Okay, we're going to draw one out who is going to be the demise of your kingdom. And he's going to grow up in your household. But first, you're going to pay his mom to nurse him. So he's going to grow up with his mom for some length of time, and she's going to be able to care for him while taking your wages, and he's going to know he's a Hebrew. Then he's going to go into your household, and you are going to give him the finest education imaginable. Stephen even says this in Acts 7. He says in 21, And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. So thank you, Pharaoh, for equipping Moses to lead the Exodus and for equipping him to write the literary masterpiece that is the Pentateuch. God is confounding the wisdom of the world in these events. And notice, just to pour salt in Pharaoh's wounds a little more, how the birth narrative ends in verse 10. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Don't name him that. This would be like Richard Nixon's daughter naming her son, Richard Nixon's grandson, Watergate. Here, Dad, meet your grandson, Watergate. It's a foreshadowing of things to come. She names him Moses because she drew him out of the water. And how will God deliver his people out of Egypt by leading them through the water? Friends, are God's plans for his people ever in danger of succumbing to the evil schemes of God's enemies. Never. I mean, I just think of Psalm 2 when I read this text. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Pharaoh is trying to exterminate God's people and God is laughing at Pharaoh, foiling his every Move and look for us as Christians. Look, whatever evil we may be encountered with, whatever oppressive or persecuting intentions that evil men may bring our way, or whatever suffering we may endure in this life, God's people are never in danger of succumbing ultimately to that evil. Yes, God may call us to suffer, and he calls even some of his people to die, but their salvation is secure. And God is working his purposes for redemption and building his church, even when it seems like there is no hope. God's church is always more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we must never lose hope or despair. 
Because even when the night is darkest, God is governing the world by his providence, confounding the wisdom of evil men, and bringing his people to salvation. When Moses was floating along a river in crocodile-infested water, God was confounding Pharaoh's wisdom and triumphing over Pharaoh's evil schemes. When the Son of God was hanging on a cross and deadened in the tomb and all hope seemed lost, God was accomplishing redemption for the world. Finally, I'll close with this. Let the narrative details of this text remind us that God in his providence cares for his people down to the details of their lives. Some of us need that reminder every week, maybe every day. Some of you here are probably tired. Some of you want the pain to go away. Some of you can't see any good in the affliction that you are enduring. Some of you can't make sense out of the trial you are in. Some of you can't figure out why he or she could be so mean or why they would do that. Well, I can't imagine anything more difficult than for a mother to give up her son not knowing what was going to happen. In this text, we get a reminder that God cares for his people. He wanted Moses' mom to be able to nurse her child. He just wanted her to get paid for it, too. It's as if God is saying, trust me, trust me, trust me. Look, this narrative is not a promise that every form of suffering in this life will eventually make sense in this life. It did in this text. But it is a reminder that God works all things together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. God cares about the specific details of our lives. He really does. Some commentators may want to say, look, we need to take the non-mention of God seriously. They may say that the plans of these people could have failed and God would have to find a different way into the future with the possibilities then available to them. But don't buy it. Can our plans fail? Of course. But if they fail, it's because God has determined that it is better for us to work and for him to work through those failures for our good and for his glory. How many of you can look back on your own life and see failure, 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 but now 10 years removed say, wow, God was working in it all. Everything in these 10 verses scream at us that God is sovereign and that he governs the world by his providence. Even in Moses' birth, we get a glimpse of God's coming salvation to Israel. Moses passed through the waters for salvation. Israel will pass through the waters for deliverance. Moses is put among the reeds in the Nile. Israel will pass through the sea of reeds. Moses' mom plunders the Egyptians by getting paid in just a few verses. Moses will tell us that the Israelite women plundered their neighbors when they left Egypt. Moses was drawn out of the water. God would draw his people out of the water. 
Later in this chapter, Moses flees from Pharaoh and goes into a wilderness for 40 years. Israel will pass through the waters when they flee from Pharaoh and spend 40 years in a wilderness. Before Moses could lead the exodus, Moses had to experience his own exodus. Before Moses could be the mediator of God's covenant to his people, Moses had to walk in their shoes. Brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago, the eternal Son of God became man. He took on flesh and as a baby was under the murderous threats of King Herod and his parents took him to Egypt because he would have to undergo his own exodus. And out of Egypt, God would call his son and Jesus would pass through the waters of baptism and go into the wilderness for 40 days and encounter Satan's temptation. But as the faithful and obedient son, he would not sin, but he would do God's will. And then at the end of his life, he would go to the cross and he would bear the flood of God's wrath against sin and undergoing that baptism and paying the penalty in full he would rise from the dead and ascend to heaven in his own exodus so that he could lead many sons like you and me to glory i hope everyone here today believes that gospel There is salvation in Christ for all who repent of sin and trust in Him. And if you believe that, brothers and sisters, then remember, God governs the world by His providence for the good of His people. Even in the most insignificant, the seemingly meaningless, the most unintelligible circumstances, and yes, the most painful trials of your life, that you can't figure out, God is there. God is there. God is working. God is for us. God governs all things for our good. His plans never fail. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the salvation that has come to us in Christ. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. Lord, that though this life in this world is filled with difficulties and suffering, we have a God who is sovereign over all. And we can be confident in your love for us because the cross reveals it supremely. So help us to leave here today, this day, with joy and gladness in our great salvation, looking to you, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for it's in his name we pray, amen.